On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, review a recent CMS quality safety and oversight memorandum related to a new resource for infection control, discuss post-COVID surgery risks, debrief from the January ASC Administrators Boot Camp, and during our focus segment, we visit with the staff of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey during our winter retreat. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 179 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for January 29th, 2023. Recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on information available as of the date of recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. I feel like we've been in the studio for, well, because we (laughs) We have have. been in the studio for a week. (laughs) We just finished our January 2023 Administrators Boot Camp, the cohort, uh, had a lot of fun. It was it was a great uh, conference. It was four days virtual, like uh, all of our administrators' boot camps, like all of our boot camps, and uh, we uh, really had a lot of great conversations, discussions, group discussions, and I think we had more speakers this time than usual too, because quite a number of our mm-hmm. staff members were able to join us this time. Yes. So it was uh, it was quite uh, quite fruitful. And we do want to welcome our newest uh, management company to this training. Provado Health joins Physicians Endoscopy to our ongoing training programs, and uh, we had a, a, a great time with all of the uh, the people that are mm-hmm. uh, are joining us from these management companies. So this is becoming a, a way for management companies to train their uh, their staff mm-hmm. as they come on board. So if you're interested in more information, certainly reach out to us at info at ASCpodcast.com. And Sue, we are celebrating our fifth year anniversary, five-year anniversary. Um, this is uh, five years doing this, mm-hmm. just finishing our five years. So as it's we just, begin, it our is sixth hard year, to believe. It is hard it? to it's, believe. Yeah, and uh, wow, 179 episodes, mm-hmm. and uh, we got a lot of plans this year. As you'll hear when we talk in our focus segment about a recent retreat, where we talked a lot about uh, those things. The retreat was great. It was seems like a long time ago now, but it was yeah. only a couple weeks ago where we kind of uh, we we do this twice a year. We try to do it twice a year where we mm-hmm. uh, get together with all of our staff from the 
the two different companies and uh, discuss all the things that are going on and make some plans for the future. So a lot of great things going on that uh, you'll hear uh, during that focus segment. And we have some exciting news. We are announcing, as we've been talking about for, I think it's about three years now, our business administrator or business officer boot camp, whatever we decide to call it, mm -hmm. uh, it will be announced very shortly. It's going to be similar to our other boot camps. It's going to be four days. It will be virtual. It Just like all of our other boot camps will involve mentoring and access to our patron program as well as the weekly drop-in sessions. Mm -hmm. um, we do have the date settled for this. It will be four days starting on Tuesday, August 8th. Uh, stay tuned for more information. We're going to be announcing a, a whole series of uh, – well, we're going to be announcing all of our uh, boot camps through the end of the year very shortly, and you'll be able to sign up uh, for those boot camps. They have become very popular, and I believe we are over 200 graduates at this point for yes. this. And, Sue, I think we have some <laughs> other exciting news. Yes, we have been talking about Rosie. We She – we just went, she's looking up at me. She's like, are you going to tell them what's going on? <laughs> um, it looks like she has probably around eight puppies that yep. she is expecting. So we're excited about that. That'll be the very beginning of March. That's right. She's never very far from us. So she's sitting <laughs> between the two of us in our studio here. So mm -hmm. if we ever go uh, virtual or, or if we ever start recording uh, these uh, these podcasts, uh, you know, with video, we'll we'll definitely have a, an extra microphone for her. But yeah, it's, uh, it's 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 an interesting. It's a lot of fun. A lot of fun going on right now. Definitely a very interesting uh, time to be in this industry, as well as to own a dog that's pregnant. <laughs> so, Sue, we have some news. We we haven't uh, talked for a bit on, on news. So, why don't you update us on some of the things that are going on? So, on the January 11th med page today, they featured a study published in JAMA about patients' perceptions of clinicians based on the color of the scrubs that they're wearing. This is fascinating. I love it is. It. <laughs> it's an easy fix if you have any issues with trust in your, in your center. Um, green scrubs were most associated with surgeons, followed by light blue, which makes sense. Um, black scrubs were ranked most negatively by patients and visitors, but as we know, clinicians sometimes tend to like them because they're they're a little more flattering than some of the other ones, and, and they hide wear, the stains. Right, and I love black. I, mm -hmm. I love black, so it's kind yep. of funny. I guess we better stop wearing it. <laughs> well, I think it's, this is scrubs in particular. Yeah, yeah. Um, blue scrubs were chosen most frequently as reflecting caring in the person who was wearing them. And the point they're making is that although there are obviously many other more important factors that go into the clinician-patient relationship, this is one thing that could really easily be modified, and it's low cost and pretty simple to do if you're looking at, you know, buying new scrubs for your place. It's something to take into consideration. And it's kind of sad because I think a lot of us are trying to get away from the traditional green scrubs to mm -hmm. make us mm -hmm. look a little uh, different from hospitals. <laughs> but it, that's that, that's an yeah. interesting, uh, interesting observation. And the Joint Commission has begun reducing and revising some of its standards to help streamline and reduce the burden on healthcare organizations that are already have been strained by the pandemic and other issues with staffing and everything. Um, here's a quote. They said, our goal is to eliminate any standard that no longer adds value. We want to have fewer but more meaningful requirements that best support safer, higher quality, and more equitable health outcomes. So for ASCs, they've deleted 20 standards and have revised one. And you can find the list of retired standards on the Joint Commission website. These changes will be effective as of February 19th, 2023. 
I find this interesting, Sue, because I think one of the objections people have sometimes to the mm-hmm. Joint Commission is that the ambulatory standards are based upon the hospital standards that were established yeah. years ago and the hospital system for running a survey. And, and uh, sometimes it just doesn't fit neatly into, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the way an ASC in particular operates. So uh, kudos to Joint Commission for, you know, looking into this and, and perhaps listening to their um, the organizations that they survey to try to find a way to simplify it. Because the more uh, standardized, the more um, mm-hmm. the less complex these standards are and the easier to read and understand. Mm-hmm. And remi- removing those that absolutely have no relevance to the ASC yes. setting is a great step. So mm-hmm. uh, again, very, uh, very nice to see that this is, this is a, a positive action. It's, mm-hmm. it's actually nice to see anybody removing standards yes. now. That, that uh, don't, that they feel like it, that are not that relevant. are not really that relevant, yeah. and they did remove a lot of hospital standards. They, they but they went through each um, general site and you know and looked yeah. at each one, which is good. And it's clear that the purpose is not to reduce the uh, the quality uh, the quality mm-hmm. here. It's just mm-hmm. to reduce the redundant standards. Yes, so. they've also added a safety briefing as part of the survey process. So this is just a short, maybe five minute. Um, time allotted at the start of the survey for the organization to brief the surveyors on any potential safety issues and how to respond. These can include workplace violence, um, active shooter, fire, any other issues pertaining to safety. So they suggest that you make sure you have somebody appointed to kind of review that with them at the beginning. And lastly, um, the Joint Commission put out their national patient safety goals for ASCs in 2023. And these include, and this is just a very brief run through, they, they have more details on their site. Correct patient identification, and especially using at least two identifiers, as we know, to um, identify the patient. Uh, medication safety, the main issue seem to be labeling of medications that are in unmarked containers, such as syringes, cups, anything like that, make sure they're labeled. Um, being extra cautious with any patients that are on blood thinners. And med reconciliation, um, including thorough medication instructions and the discharge instructions, um, preventing infection, um, focused on hand hygiene, and preventing surgical mistakes, which focused on the site marking, correct patient and site identification, and pausing before the surgery to make sure no mistakes are made. So they didn't specifically, in the condensed version, they didn't specifically say a timeout, but just sort of taking that that moment, and I'm sure they require a timeout, but, you know, just taking a moment to be sure you're doing the right thing. And these aren't dramatic changes in the patient yeah. safety goals, but they are important because they do point out ongoing uh, issues that have been identified in healthcare mm-hmm. surveys done by Joint Commission over the last year and those types mm-hmm. of things that they find having the most uh, of a negative negative impact on, uh, on, on, on safety and quality. So uh, it's always good. Even if you're not a joint commission organization, yeah. you know what they're, uh, they're looking at. I think there's always a lot of crossover. I mean, obviously, yeah. these are things that are important to any site with any accreditation organization. And I saw this in the U.S. News from December 15th. According to researchers at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Patients who have had COVID-19 are at a significantly higher risk for postoperative complications. Now, this has been noted in other studies, and I believe we've even talked about it, but they found the time frame is longer than they previously thought. They found that risk was still declining more than a year after the COVID diagnosis. So the risk for cardiovascular problems, including clots, strokes, heart, and kidney damage, dropped from approximately 18% to 10% in the first 100 days, and reached about 8% after 400 days or 13 months. They found the rate 
of decreasing risk was not affected by the patient's vaccination status. So I thought this really is significant enough to warrant being a part of the discussion with your patients when you're scheduling patients, you know, depending obviously on the urgency of the surgery, but it, it is a piece to take into account. Yeah, so the longer that you wait after the mm-hmm. after somebody's had COVID, the, the better the expected outcome or the less chance yes. of a complication. And I'm not sure people think about it unless, yeah. you know, they're, they're still testing positive or they say, oh, I just had it a month ago. But it's really something to really look back that in the past year or so. Especially concerning given the number of people that are getting COVID or mm-hmm. having COVID mm-hmm. again, yeah. uh, even after having it before. So this is definitely something you should be thinking about and certainly not rushing people back into surgery if it's not absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. And probably you've all heard about this, but 25 people in Florida were charged with participation in a wire fraud scheme that sold more than 7,600 nursing degree diplomas from three Florida-based nursing schools. Um, They also provided false transcripts to some of these people. The diplomas and transcripts allowed people to sit for the nursing board exam. Some of the people that purchased the fake degrees did have legitimate LPN licenses, um, but hadn't gone to school for an RN. Um, honestly, I, I don't know how someone without the proper education would be able to pass the NCLEX. And to me, that's maybe the craziest part of yeah. this. Um, and yet they said 2,400 of the 7,600 students eventually passed the board exam. So federal officials say the people who bought the diplomas may lose their certification, hopefully will, but they yeah. phrased it as may, um, but will most likely not be criminally charged, which I kind of found interesting. I mean, that's that's a large I, I number of people too. Seven thousand yeah. six hundred nursing degrees. I, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of shocked at it, though. It, it, it made the mainstream media. There's an awful mm-hmm. lot of uh, talk about this, so hopefully people will keep a closer eye on it. But it is yeah. uh, frightening to think that uh, that's out there, though. You know, as you said, the 2400 that did pass the pass, is not an easy exam. No, um, I don't. I. You know, they, <laughs> Kind of surprised, but yeah. and again, it sh- certainly points out the importance of doing all of these background checks on people and and keeping up with this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as you know, we're always monitoring the quality, safety, and oversight memorandums uh, that come out from CMS. And in January nineteenth, twenty twenty three, this year, uh, there was a QSO dash twenty three dash zero six for all Medicare providers in the nation. Uh, related to provider and supplier compliance education through quality in focus or QIF trainings. So this is actually really good news. So the background here is that CMS performs over 100,000 compliance surveys of Medicare and Medicaid certified providers and suppliers each year. And to increase compliance with the uh, CMS's health and safety regulations, CMS has used the findings from all of those surveys to inform a series of short between 10 and 15 minute quality and focus or QIF interactive training videos tailored for specific provider types, including ambulatory surgery centers. And the intent of this whole initiative is to provide a resource for providers and suppliers to proactively address common compliance concerns and therefore increase the quality of care for patients and residents. These trainings highlight both specific citation patterns as well as compliance solutions to incorporate into a facility's operational practices. And each interactive video focuses on a specific health or safety citation with the goal of helping facilities proactively identify and prevent these deficiencies in the future. And for the ambulatory surgery industry, the topic is not surprisingly on infection control citations. We're going to include a link to both the QSO as well as the website 
So they have developed a website for all of the quality, safety, and education portal training. And there's a, uh, there's a catalog of all that information or all of those videos and, and other training, as well as this new QIF or quality and focus resource. So the title is Quality and Focus Resources for Addressing Ambulatory Surgical Center Infection Control Citations Training for Providers. They like to have long uh, names just like I do in our uh, uh, educational programs. So we'll, again, provide a link directly to not only the training for the infection control uh, QIF, but also for uh, the, the entire resource for CMS. So these are all free. As I understand it, you can actually get certificates of completion uh, by logging in, though I haven't tried this yet, but it's going to be interesting to see how this works. And watch their website for more information to come. Uh, we'll also be putting together more links in our patron program website, which is ASC Central, to make the training a little bit more accessible for everybody. But I find this, uh, especially the short 10 to 15-minute time frame, Sue, is going to be really good for many of you who are doing, you know, in-service training, for example, uh, or something that you can have people do, you know, in their in those those few moments between uh, cases that you might have. So mm-hmm. I think this is uh, an exciting new resource. I did listen to one of the training programs uh, without having to log in. Uh, and again, this is a free resource directly from CMS. Let's talk a little bit about some recent experiences. We uh, have a center, a new center of ours that was cited for the age of their instruments. So they had instruments that were over 20 years old in some cases. And the instruments were kind of worn down. They didn't have, uh, it was very difficult to read uh, the manufacturer and therefore they couldn't produce uh, instructions for use for these instruments. So the state surveyors in the situation went in and cited them for this and the instruments have to be replaced. uh, Or I think in some cases they were able to use a microscope to find that information and be able to download the resources. But in some cases, even getting the instructions for use for these very old instruments was difficult. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it does come into question. The surveyors were saying, you know, really, if these instruments are that old, are they safe to continue using at this point? Um, so that's going to be a, an interesting. That's an interesting development there, and again emphasizes the importance of making sure you have instructions for use mm-hmm. for every single instrument for everything that you have in your organization. And that you're following it appropriately. Right. And, you know, I got to be honest. So uh, unfortunately, for those of you who are going to be subject to a survey by me uh, in the future, one of those things I'm going to do now is probably pick a random instrument that Mm -hmm. somebody presents uh, or that I see on a shelf and say, can you produce the instruction for use for this? Because uh, never really dawned on me that, you know, to actually test that out as the state, the state surveyors did. So uh, so be forewarned if you uh, see me show up on your doorstep that I'll be asking that question now. And they also had an issue with double peel packs. And this has been an ongoing issue. Uh, you know, um, uh, doubling up on the peel packs has been a common practice all along. But the recent, the recent instructions for use for most of not all of these peel packs indicates that you should never fold over the inner peel pack. Mm-hmm. In other words, the inner peel pack should fit right within the outer peel pack yeah. um, in order to be in, in compliance with the instructions for yeah. use. So again, it shouldn't be wrinkled or folded, anything That's right. like that, That's really. And, and, well, and the other thing, Sue, is that you need to be able to read uh, all corners of mm-hmm. those peel packs mm-hmm. to make sure that there was no damage to them. Yeah. So. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Again, something I haven't I, – I have been noting, especially when I'm doing a survey, to, to make sure that, uh, you know, that they have instructions for use for all the peel packs, but now I'm going to be a little bit more diligent with that. 
So this is exciting. Uh, Sue, during, uh, I think it was the first week in January, the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies team and the ASC podcast with John Gailey team, which there's a lot of crossover, actually, mm-hmm. 100% crossover, <laughs> uh, in, uh, got together here at our at our home in uh, Spencerport, New York, which is also our main location for our studios and and uh, just getting together in a little conference, big conference room we have down here. And we recorded, um, I, I think it was about 45 minute interview with all of our staff or as much of our staff as was willing to talk about various <laughs> things that are going on, in, including a lot of topics uh, and expectations for 2023. Mm-hmm. And we thought it would be interesting to share these observations and what we we're planning at AHS as well as the podcast. So uh, we're, we have a lot of big plans this year. We've got some interesting conferences that we're going to try to put together here. And, uh, and we talked about that in quite a bit of depth during this interview. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have that interview. It's been a long day and the surveyors just left and you are exhausted and looking at the list of items that you have to address. You wonder, how can I deal with this and still take care of my patients? More importantly, you wonder, how can I ever keep up with all the regulations, standards, and accreditation requirements? How can I always be prepared for a survey and reduce my stress levels? Well, that's what Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies does, day in, day out. We become your outsourced regulatory and accreditation resource. We can maintain your policy manual, develop your education programs, help out with fire and disaster drills, do your risk assessments, oversee your quality improvement activities, help run your quality improvement meetings and governing body meetings, and we can even prepare your monthly or quarterly financial statements and help you figure out where you are financially. We are a retainer-based service. We don't take ownership. We don't charge based on your revenue. We have one fixed monthly fee, and we can tailor your services to your exact needs. So whether you're looking for help getting over a survey, preparing for a survey, or looking for a long-term relationship to assist you with your ongoing regulatory and or financial needs, please give us a call at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ahstrategies.com. That is info at ah-strategies.com or visit our website at ah-strategies.com. So we are at the 2023, I guess we'll call it winter 2023 retreat for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Uh, we tend to have two retreats a year, unfortunately, in 2022. Those of you who follow us closely know that uh, we had to cut out one of our retreats because we had a certain litter of puppies, and Rosie uh, uh, <laughs> graced us with that, but unfortunately, we had to cut one of our retreats out. But here we are in January of 2023. Uh, with the crew from Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Unfortunately, we are a little bit short on our staff at this point. We've had some challenges during this retreat. And uh, so uh, it'll be a little bit shorter uh, podcast uh, than it normally is. But I wanted to go around the room and kind of talk about some of the hot topics that were discussed during the retreat and some of the things that are really kind of leading edge of our concerns in the ambulatory surgery industry. As I ask questions, I'm going to ask each of you to introduce yourself so that they know who uh, each of you are. We're going to start with a discussion about life safety, which is without a doubt uh, probably one of those areas that came about in the in the uh, discussion this uh, this week. Uh, one of the major issues that we're all facing. So, starting with Alex, Alex, introduce yourself and let's uh, talk about life safety surveys and the hot topics. 
I'm Alex Orman, Director of Operations in the AHS. And I'm Mike D'Ambrosio, a life safety consultant for AHS. Yeah, so talking about hot topics, in life safety, nothing's hotter right now than the emergency electrical systems or EES. Um, so those are your emergency power systems, like your generators or your, your UPS battery system. These are at the forefront of the conversation right now, especially with regards to anything lower than a type one emergency electrical system. And the reason for that is there's some movement on the state level, but also the pressure on the federal level from, from the accrediting organizations has, has just gotten to be so much greater than it's been in the past. And there's increased focus on the electrical system and more in-depth focus. Uh, surveyors are no longer just taking a quick peek at your electrical panels. Um, they they want to see the one-line drawings. They want to really dig in and make sure that everything's wired appropriately. They want to make sure a transfer switches are, are in place and that the drills are being done and that the logs are being kept for those as well, uh, making sure that the regular evaluations on the center's part of those systems are adequate. And, and that includes generator checks. Uh, uh, that includes making sure the uh, areas are marked and the uh, the proper uh, labeling of, of circuits, et cetera. Yeah. Now, I, you know, a lot of this is happening, Alex and Mike, because our surveyors are getting better trained. Right. Um, and, you know, we've known that some of the accrediting organizations have probably, you know, stronger are stronger in this area than others. But from what we are hearing from the industry, all of the survey organizations and the states are going to be in a position where they are, you know, continuing to ramp up their oversight of the life safety area. Now, when I go into a center and I, especially when I'm doing a mock survey or I'm visiting a center that we have been uh, traditionally done some work with, one of the comments I always hear is, don't worry about that area that you just noted on the life safety side because we're grandfathered. So, um, why don't you talk a little bit about what grandfathering means and whether uh, there are any grandfathers anymore? Yeah, because this this is one of the first things that I do have to talk with on the life safety side for new new clients, especially. Don't use the word grandfather. Don't use the word. Well, what was the one that you used earlier, Mike? Existing. Uh, well, existing existing is the right word, um, basically. So. You're either a new center or you're an existing center, and that comes straight out of the life safety code. But they're exempt, I think, was the word that we were right. tossing around earlier. And and there are exemptions in some in some cases, but in terms of being an older center, that doesn't grant you any except exemptions um, from the life safety code. You either meet the code or you don't. You might be under a different set of the code because you're existing, but that has its own requirements that you still have to meet. And Alex, along those lines too, sometimes we hear people say, oh, I've got a waiver for that, but waivers are time limited, right? For the most part. Most, you you do have some categorical waivers um, that you do need to officially adopt, things like your power strips, especially in the operating rooms. Um, and, and again, I. I I like to say that there's there's about seven different citations that you can get with a power trip. 
So it, even even after having that categorical waiver. So it, it's still a dangerous item in terms of getting uh, drawing a citation. Um, you know, obviously there's regulations about it because of the danger with it in, in that it's a safety component as well. And it, it's best to really avoid them. But if you do have them, you have to buy a specific type of a power strip and any of the outlets that are not being used have to be covered uh, at all times. Right, right. And it's it, it's actually even a little bit more advanced than that yeah. because you have to actually look at the amperage of the amperage rating of the power strip and the amperage rating of everything that's plugged in and then ensure that nothing else is going to get plugged in there. Um, it, like you said, with by covering those, those outlets. Um, but there doesn't need to be an official assessment, not called out that way, mm -hmm. but you do need to ensure that and then prove it through the survey. So Alex, this is a tough thing to keep on top of. And I'm looking at you and I'm looking at Mike and I'm looking at, unfortunately, Jim was not able to join us, who is our, our actually a life safety surveyor with the accreditation organization. And we laughingly refer to all of the people that we work with and that are familiar with life safety as experts. And yet I, I know uh, you, uh, really every person that I talk to who specializes in life safety cringes when I say you're an expert in that area. Talk a little bit about how difficult it is to stay on top of that. Right, right. And and as a lot of the surveyors will tell you, they, they learn something new in every survey. As a as a consultant in this area, I, I learn something new in every survey. Um, and of course, what that means is every single review that you go under is going to find new items and should find new items because the, these codes are so so complex that no one person can be an expert in all of them. And if, if they say they are, they're probably missing something. But that doesn't mean that there's not a use for life safety consultants and and for that matter, your your life safety surveyors, there's a real reason, even though that surveyor is going to miss some things, that doesn't mean that the next surveyor that comes behind them is wrong. And again, I think that's important to remember, they're just a snapshot. The survey is just a snapshot. Right. Um, right. You know, in a brief period of time when they're evaluating a very complex system. Now, of course, it, and I, I, I do always encourage you to, to challenge um, whether it be a uh, a surveyor or or a consultant, definitely definitely want to double check that um, any items that they bring up because that helps you to ensure that you know exactly where that code is coming from. But also know that you know any any one review does not guarantee that a more thorough review in the future doesn't bring to light something something new and something problematic. So what are the consequences of your failure to uh, uh, to meet all the requirements of, uh, of life safety? Well, at the most base level, of course, you have the plan of correction that you have to have to put together. Um, assuming well, that that would go for any of the life safety surveys, because that means that it's a, a CMS survey. Um, and then if you go up to the standard, up to the condition level, um, that's what then would cause you to have to have a resurvey, and and that that resurvey, if it's done by an accrediting organization, will cost you more money. 
Um, so there's a monetary component, um, depending on the, the surveying organization, um, that, that monetary value changes. But even if you're having your state do your life safety survey, you still, you still run the risk. That, and we, we haven't seen this in any of our areas, um, in, in terms of states, but on, on the life safety side, at least, but there is always a risk of a fine. Um, yeah, some states uh, allow for a fine. And, and by the way, just because you've never been fined in the past doesn't mean that they won't exert a fine in the future, especially with, let's face it, you know, with the, the financial situations in many of the states, this could be another potential revenue source. Yeah, it's a fundraising yeah. um, activity sometimes. Um, and we're not, not talking quick. small fines, you know, often right. these are, are five, six figure fines that can come out. So it is important that you... You, uh, even though you might not have a fine right now, but uh, that is the danger of, uh, that is a possibility. Right. So so it's important to note that there's definite risks on both sides, whether you're having your accreditation organization do your, your surveying or, or your state. Risk assessments might have been a big, big issue lately. I mean, I, I would tell you back when I was an administrator, you know, 17 years ago or such, um, you know, we, we actually, I don't even remember, I don't even remember that there being a risk assessment. I believe that the NFPA 99 risk assessment has always been there, but it was one of those things that was done by your architect, you know, before you started construction and, and we as administrators that never saw it. Talk a little bit about that. You, you are practically full-time doing risk assessment lately. And again, uh, regulations continue to evolve. So, you know, the part of the uh, requirements is to, is to have a hazard vulnerability analysis done. And those are critical to identify those areas that need improvement. That's why they were, um, they're instituted on the, you know, and it's important on these risk assessments to remember uh, to get a narrative, the kind of description of the, a summary of the of the risk assessment to see, you know, what what areas were identified as needing improvement. And, and as well as making sure that there was a final determination documented somewhere, you know, in that, in that risk assessment to show final uh, yeah I'd let, let's emphasize that again it's just do, filling out the risk assessment is not enough and i know Lori's not here to talk about infection control risk assessment same thing happens with that for infection control hazard vulnerability analysis fire uh nfpa 99 nfpa 98 all of those require not only the risk assessment being performed but an analysis and reporting them reporting the results of that to the quality improvement committee and then on to the board right right in, in having that final determination noted I, and i've I've been in conversations with surveyors before where they say, okay, great, your your wet dry risk assessment, which was created by AFI, says you may have a dry location, but that's not a final determination. That just says you might have a dry location. Yeah. So we need to determine, okay, yes, we have a dry location. And then now now what is that? You know? So there's some centers that have dry ORs that still install fine isolation and you know that is totally acceptable but you need to have that actually written out that narrative and that final and again documented right to your point but on the HVA is one of the things we're seeing is you know remember they should be done yearly because you're going to find that uh, things tend to rise up in importance uh, they become more of a problem uh and, and things things change uh you know, whether it's, uh, you know, well, contaminated water, we're seeing a lot of water main breaks, et cetera, that tends to, you know, increase your 
your vulnerability to that particular hazard. Uh, so it's important to have those reviewed on a on a yearly basis. Well, thank you very much for. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about life safety, but uh, certainly life safety is one of those things that's included in all of the retainers amendment for our healthcare strategies and. Uh, uh, if you do need some assistance in life safety, feel free to give us a call. Um, you know, we would be glad to talk to you about this. It's probably one of the more difficult areas right now. And uh, we'll talk a little bit later about the, some things we're going to do with the podcast, too, uh, to, uh, to, to help out in this area. I want to move on to finance and uh, introduce Tony Lyons uh, first, and then uh, Zach. Go ahead, Tony. Hi, my name is Tony Lyons, and I'm uh, a MBA and CPA and I've known John Gailey for a long time. John, not to not to blow him in, but he's actually uh, an expert finance guy himself, and uh, so he's is uh, great to have over my shoulder. Um, should I get into some of the things? Yeah, I, I want to introduce Zach, who yeah. is uh, uh, you know heads up our our cost report division, which uh, is not applicable for all states, but uh, Zach is uh, is very much involved in finances too. Go ahead, Zach. Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Zach Kelleritis. I'm a financial consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. And yeah, as John mentioned, I, I focus on cost reports for uh, New York State-based clients and helping them with that. And financial statements as well. Financial as, statements uh, and, yep, and uh, HICRA reporting. So, uh, Tony, uh, when we last spoke, we, uh, last time we did a podcast from one of our retreats last year, I believe it was, we uh, we talked about how we were implementing a new uh, financial service here, uh, which is kind of funny because we started out this company in, in 2009 as a, a, doing a lot of finances. Um, and then we kind of veered away from it. And then you came on board about two years. Just over a year. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Uh, came on board and we realized that there was a huge need for that. And, and indeed, uh, after our, our discussion last year, this uh, you you had uh, had a couple you know projects working with some of our clients. One is ongoing, one is finished. Uh, so talk a little bit about some of the things that are happening in the industry and why all of a sudden are we starting to find a need again for financial uh, oversight services? Well, I think, um, you know, first of all, the the whole accounting financial realm, you know, in healthcare, it's really, it speaks to the business side of, of our organizations. And accounting is the language of business, no matter which business you're in. So, um that language has to articulate the condition of a company uh, to a number of different audiences, to the to the government, yeah. through, uh, you know, out of the financial statements and cost reports, as Zach mentioned, and um, uh, other reporting, you know, uh, some of the loans and, and things we've, we've received in the industry for, um, because, you know, for COVID relief right. uh, requires reporting on our financial position to the government. So um, then, of course, there's banks and financial institutions, because if you want to get any loans, if you want to get any, you know, anything to start up or to keep going, you need to have adequate financial information. As well as the possibility of selling your whole organization yeah. in the future or buying out a partner or or having a new partner buying into your organization. Exactly. And that, that's the next audience, ownership. Ownership, the current owners, they want to know where, where we're at. If you're going to sell it, you really need to have your financial house in order. Um, and uh, so the, you you can sell an organization without having your financial house in order, but you may you may uh, short yourself yeah. if you don't know what, you, what you've got. And then uh, a really important audience because it has a direct impact on the operations as management. Yeah. 
uh, and management needs good information in order to react. And, and it's interesting, uh, this year we're doing uh, financial statements for three organizations. Zach does it for an organization in Ohio, and I did it for uh, uh, one of our organizations here in uh, New York State. And now I'm uh, doing another one. The two here in New York, and I, I'm not real sure about maybe the one in Ohio also, these are not new or young organizations. They've gone through a life cycle. Yeah. And what often happens is, uh, you know, a, a center can be successful for a number of years and maybe get into a rut. And even with your, you know, your financial reporting, it it gets slack. It's it's lax. Then when things are changing in the industry, whether it's COVID or whether it's uh, uh, physicians retiring out, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, in the industry or, or, or with your own center, if you don't have good financial information, then you're really at a loss for reacting quickly enough to you can't change the conditions just by having financial information, but you you often don't know the conditions until it's uh, way past the time you should have started making changes. Yeah. So we're finding it's it's organizations, and I'm sure younger organizations too, but that are far along in their life cycle that you would think uh, would have this down pretty well. But you know, because of uh, turnovers in uh, in in uh, in our centers, in in not only in with nurses and but also in the in the business office and with finance people. You know, you bring in finance people that are not familiar with the healthcare industry. It's it's an education to start to understand the things you really need to be paying attention to. Um, you know, we're heavy on the personnel side. The whole uh, materials management is a different area. And then there is accounts receivable. The revenue um, generation process is a uh, it, it is different than anything else. From all sides, um, I'm not an expert on coding and all of that type of thing. But uh, I, uh, one thing we've helped the centers do is to understand, help them understand where their receivables really are, what their agings are, and how they compare to other organizations. Actually, accounting and finance overall is is a standardized uh, mechanism that helps the government, banks, owners, everyone to understand how their organization compares to others and how it compares to their past experience. So it's it's uh, information that uh, needs to be done well, needs to be done timely, and often that process falls by the wayside because there's so many important – I've I've run ambulatory surgery centers, yeah. um, and there's so many important things to take care of. And it's one of the things that can can get neglected either by ownership or management, or both, and needs to be revived. So we've had the opportunity to do that uh, for a couple of organizations. We're working on one right now that uh, uh, we're making some progress on. And, um, and, and we think it, it's a really something that could be helpful to uh, to a lot of ASCs. And isn't it fair to say that, uh, like the two projects that you've worked on in the last year, uh, both of them, w- when the money was flowing, yeah, <laughs> and you know they were making plenty of money and there was distributions going out, Nobody was questioned. Nobody was spending a lot of time looking at the accounts receivable. Yeah. Um, because there wasn't, they didn't feel like it was an issue. By the way, there's a good chance that even at those times, yep. there was an accounts receivable issue. It's just that you were making enough money that you weren't worried your about. Abundance was, your abundance was masking problems that were there. That were there and, yeah. and could would eventually catch up with them. Yeah. And in both of these circumstances, they ended up coming to us almost too late for us to be able to solve their yeah. problem. I mean, we, in one case, we're still working on it. But um, 
you know, it, and, it, and it's a lot more work to do it after the fact. And and isn't it true that in both of these circumstances we've had in the last year that when when they came to us, our our biggest challenge in the beginning was that they were all on a cash basis of accounting. Well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we we have been able to help, uh, help them be on an accrual basis, which is, again, with the standardization that helps you understand where you're at in the industry and to have a better idea of matching revenues generated in the period by the activity in that period with the expenses of that period. Because if you're on a cash basis, you're not doing your accruals and you're not uh, either on the on the revenue side nor on the expense side. So uh, and then having I think non accountants often think of the income statement, but the balance sheet is very important. And uh, you to produce uh, adequate balance sheets, you need to have good uh, income statement, accrual income statement information on an ongoing basis. So, uh, and then and then that whole area of looking at accounts receivable is uh, very so important in any business, but in in healthcare, it is uh, it is very very important. So yeah. So not not only is there this uh, this realistic uh, need for financial information in order to be able to run your business, keep yourself profitable, uh, identify a situation where you might not be profitable moving forward, but there's also a regulatory component. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, well, uh, in in many states, but here in in New York State, <clears throat> is um, all centers are required to get audited financial statements because we need to do cost reports which which we do quite a volume of those Zach is the his main lead on that and uh and we uh, I work with him uh and that's a requirement so along with along with other requirements that are required of other industries just tax reporting mm-hmm. payroll tax reporting and there are uh, companies that get behind in those things, and you cannot afford to do that because of the penalties that will occur. And uh, most recently, the PRF reporting, the, the uh, provider relief fund. That's right. And, which is not ended. Yeah. And then, you know, it's not an area we get into, but I referred to it earlier in terms of the actual billing and the coding and that type of thing. That's a whole compliance area that is very sensitive to that uh, in hospitals I work with quite closely um, and uh, uh, that needs a lot of attention. Yeah. So. Um, the uh, uh, and another area. Uh, this, of course, is only for for newer centers or centers that are, are are adding services that you need to get a certificate of need for. Uh, the way we start a certificate of need project is by doing a feasibility study, yeah. and that becomes, of course, a base document uh, for the owners uh, as well as uh, to submit to the uh, uh, approving authorities. Right. Uh, so it's uh, that's that's another regulatory. Uh, your governmental look see. And, and Zach, on your side, you've been, uh, you know, you, you uh, uh, Zach, of all of our employees, probably has the the biggest challenge with deadlines because, whereas I think from a compliance standpoint with surveys, we actually have the ability to kind of predict uh, within some reasonable time frame when when a deadline is going to come. Unfortunately, with many of these, you know, like the provider relief fund deadlines, which was a moving target, the cost report deadlines in New York is a moving target. Uh, and, and you know, the various extension you get for various things, as well as new things. In Ohio, uh, we have reporting for, I forget, a, a tax assessment. I'm blanking on the name of that tax assessment out there that that, that has to be done on a regular basis. Uh, Alex, let's finish up by talking just a little bit about provider relief funding, because I believe that we have some more deadlines still to come in the future. Some of them are in the past, but we want to remind people of the importance of getting those reports in on time. Yeah, and one of the, one of the, uh, 
upcoming ones for the payments that will be in reporting period four, which is the next one coming up. And that would be payments received between July 1st, 2021 through December 31st, 2021. Um, available basically the last last day to use that money was the end of this past year, so December 31st, 2022. And then the reporting time period uh, opened five days ago, and um, it goes until March 31st. Okay, and moving on, let's uh, let's uh, transition to Jenna. Jenna, you have been very, very busy this last year. Jenna uh, kind of heads up our startups, and uh, we thought we would talk a little bit about uh, about what's our experiences with startups. You know, both for those of you that are listening, that are thinking about starting a surgery center, or many of you who are already in the process of starting a surgery center. Talk a little about the the challenges that you've had recently with with that in in today's environment. Um, First of all, introduce yourself. Okay. Jenna Alvarez Senior. Well, we never we never determined whether or not we were changing our title. So I guess we're going we're sticking with the old one. We're sticking with the old titles for now. Yeah. yeah. We're having a identity crisis in the company. My startup specialist. Uh, yeah. Secret title. <laughs> we don't put that on your cards. That's because I have a thousand at home that I refuse <laughs> to get rid of. <laughs> um. So yeah. So we've had three projects that have been like in full swing you know <laughs> under construction in the past year we had a um, number that we that are fully up and running now i can't remember how many two of them are up and running one of them i'm literally refreshing you know <laughs> email every two minutes waiting you're um, obsessed about that so, waiting for the for the plan of correction <laughs> results to come in <laughs> So we're a little messed up with the holidays as to when exactly I'm getting it. So um, you always have your normal delays in the project. Yeah. I mean, I think the project that opened in April, we thought was going to open in December. The project that we opened in March, we thought was going to open in January. Uh, Lesson number one, no matter what you think your deadline is, opening date is going to be, it's never going to be. project that we thought we were going to be opening this week, we thought we were opening a year ago, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an important point if if you're building a new ASC right now or about to build a new ASC in the next, what, say six months, Mm -hmm. um, it'll take you 18 months to get a generator. So <laughs> we're not joking. And yeah. the generator has been one of the major challenges right now. And, and equipment in general. Yeah. Um, I know, you know, some of the sterilization equipment is at least eight months, you right. know, um, and that's one of the, the new challenges. You know, usually it's, it, it used to always be like a construction delay there, you know, you ran into something, you had to change something. Well, and I have a real concern about that with, because as, <laughs> I'm looking at Donna. We all know one of the things that breaks down all the time in our surgery centers and, and is is sterilizers, for example. And you know, uh, giving the sterilizer, you know, some one of our critical pieces of equipment breaks down, and we have to wait eight months for a new one or try to find a, a reconditioned one. That could be a very frightening situation. So, if one of yours is coming up to end of life, start looking. Yeah, very good point. Very good yeah. point. Sorry. And then, and then the other the other challenges that we've had that I feel like have been. Well, maybe not new, but uh, more prevalent this time around have been we've had a number of centers that have lost key people before they even opened, either a nurse manager or administrator, Um, which really then, you know, my one center 
I, you know, I'd worked putting the policy manual together with the first nurse manager. She left. Then we had a new nurse manager come in and we kind of had to start from scratch. I mean, we had the policy manual built, but it's a new person who's going to be running the center and she might want to run things a little bit differently. You know, it's different experience levels. And and honestly, (laughs) going through the policy manual is a lot of it just brought up a lot of conversations of, oh, what do you mean by that, Jenna? Oh, well, okay, let's talk about, you know, your, um, what you're doing for pharmacy, you know, uh, your hazardous drug, like what type of hazardous drugs are you using or are you using hazardous drugs? Um, you know, I, so many different things, you know, that the policy manual kind of prompts questions as, we're going through kind of our template to like say, okay, we need to personalize this to you. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of things. There's so many things that you have to decide starting a center. It kind of has been nice this time around um, that, it, you know, that's kind of been my starting point of, okay, let's talk about this. Or, you know, um, that, I don't know. I, I think I've had a lot more involvement this time, which has been nice. Sometimes I have centers that just are like, okay, give me a policy manual. Yeah. And then we find out that the centers aren't following their policy right. manual and it's not. They think know. they can just buy one and then yeah. just implement it. It's not the and, case. And that was where you run into problems. And I think it's been really, it, in the, it's you know, center to center is so different. And I've definitely worked with a lot of great nurse managers in the past. But then again, I've had people leave and then I have a whole new, you know, you have a whole new pe- group of people coming in that you know what worked for the first nurse manager doesn't work for the second nurse manager so one of the other challenges i think you face jenna too is that those that have been operating surgery centers for a long period of time or those that have been through a survey uh or those that have studied you know the regulatory requirements they're well aware of what's going on and what what is needed but it is not infrequent that these owners who have developed the surgery center, who hired somebody to come in and do it, you know, are shocked at the magnitude of regulatory requirements that are out there and the risks that they as an organization are taking uh, when they set up a, a surgery center. Talk just a, briefly about some of those things that you've run into recently. Yeah, well, I think some surgeons who haven't, you know, have worked from the hospital before, but never in a surgery center. Or maybe they do work in a bigger surgery center, but now they're starting their own smaller surgery center. And, and they hadn't been exposed to, to, to and, the whole and, thing. You know, if they're one of four surgeons. Yeah. They don't realize, oh, you know, I can't, can't remember who I was talking to. I've got I've got a number of startups, but I've also got a number of my centers that are preparing for their three-year reaccreditation. And uh, so one of the, my administrators was telling me that she was talking to her surgeons and they had said, well, they're not going to want to talk to me. And she had to come back and say, you're one of four surgeons. If they come the day that you're the surgeon operating, yeah. they're going to be following you around a lot. <laughs> right, right. Um, you better be prepared. It's not you're one of hundreds of, sur- you know, of physicians in a hospital and they maybe spend five minutes in an OR compared to the rest of the hospital. So it's a little bit different. And then the other thing that I've been trying to really emphasize this time around is for these centers, as hard as that first survey Mm. is, your initial accreditation, especially since, you know, if you get one condition level citation, you you fail. Right. um, And you have to, you know, reapply. That second. um, Will probably be the worst survey that you'll ever have. Because they're because. 
you know, a lot of times on that first survey, you don't have a ton of back mm-hmm. data for them to look at. A lot of it is you're promising an awful lot of things and you they're seeing what you have set up. Three years later, they're coming back and saying, okay, did you actually follow through with all of that? Right. right. And they're not prepared for that because they often say, oh, that first survey was a breeze. Not going to be a problem. I'll, I'll pass this next one. That that happens to me all the time when I go in and do a mock survey for an organization that's preparing for the second. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry, John. They never saw that the last time. They will this time. They will or they time. may not this time, but they could three Later years on. late. You know, yeah. it, it, just because you never was cited on something before doesn't mean that they won't cite you. Now, yeah. That's almost a throwaway that you just said there, Jenna. But that that could be that that could be like the title of uh, articles or even this podcast here is that just because you weren't cited before doesn't mean you won't be cited in the future. Right? And remember, you're you're not just doing it for a survey. But if something happens, obviously patient care. But also, just if something happens, people are going to pick everything apart and look. And you don't want yeah. to have anything that they're going to be able to point to and say, you know, things weren't done right. Yeah, once we we identify a problem, then we dig into it even deeper. So. Well, and they can tell if you haven't been doing things the right for the past two and a half years, and then suddenly you clean everything up in the last six months. Yeah, us surveyors are kind of smart. <laughs> <laughs> right, Ann? <laughs> I have, have Ann Geyer also on her. <laughs> we're not, we're not dumb people. And when we're, uh, we we're going know to what to look for. We know where all the secrets <laughs> are. That's right. Uh, thank you, Jenna. Uh, moving on, uh, uh, I'm going to introduce Judy. Usually I introduce Judy to talk about her role with our educational program. Uh, but Judy this year took on a new role, and that is she uh, does some of our uh, does medical record consulting also for uh, for our clients. And New York, one of the reasons for that is New York State requires you to have a medical record consultant. I, I believe that's the only state that has that requirement. But I thought, Judy, this time I'd have you talk a little bit about documentation challenges that we have. You know, your experience in going in and looking at these uh, charts, you know, sometimes uh, even the nursing chart audits, you know, everybody just looks at the same things. Everything's fine. You know, I as a surveyor come in 100 percent compliance, no problems with the nursing chart. And I come in and I just like trash chapter six in case of triple A. Talk about some of the things that you've been seeing recently and the importance of having somebody. And I'm not saying necessarily a consultant. That's great. And it's a great advantage to have a consultant come in. But even making sure that your nursing chart audits are robust. My name is Judy D'Ambrosio. I am the director of education, but I'm just jumping now into the medical record field. Um, And I think what I find most interesting is that if you read a center's policy in Chapter 6 or, or medical record, one of the first ones is the center is going to put someone in charge of the accuracy and, and collectiveness of your medical record. And if I go in and visit and I ask who, the, who that is, they look at me like my, I have four hats. I, I don't know. I, no, nobody. Happens to me all the time as a surveyor. Yeah, they don't know who who's in charge. So if no one's in charge, then I already know exactly the things to look for. Nobody's taught these people that this is a legal document. Yeah. This is not something you have to do because you're forced to document. This is a legal thing. Mm-hmm. So what you say or what you don't say, um, what you document or what you don't is really very important. And yes, most of the centers do do nursing chart audits, which is usually when one of your, you know, a senior level nurse will look over the charts, a certain number of charts, to see how her, her nursing staff is documented. And I'm always taken aback by even in my own centers, the centers that I work with, they say, no, nope. 20% <laughs> compliance quarter after quarter after quarter. Like, yeah, no, there's no way. 
that that's possible. Um, and that's either you are looking at the same things over and over again. You know, if you have you have a chart, nursing chart audits, and you've used that same chart for three years, you've, you've already taught them to correct bonus. <laughs> you know, so let's go on and let's go a little farther. Let's see what we can find that we need to work on, because there's always something that you can work on to do better. So I find that those those are the kind of things I say when I visit. One, let's figure out who's in charge. And then let's get this person really, really up to date on what needs to be done and what doesn't. And I know that that changes more often than I care to, even yeah. if you just go down through H&P. So you're all probably very aware that there was a change in H&P from both CMS and accrediting organizations. Um, and it, it didn't help us. No, like, no. If anybody's out there celebrating, oh, yay, no H&P. Oh, God, you're so wrong. Well, we, we actually had, a, yeah. I think it was about a two-hour conversation during our retreat here about the ramifications of this new change, which we'll talk about in some podcasts. I, I, don't, I yeah. don't think it was intended to, to reduce paperwork, right, to make things easier. But it's almost as if they've made a complete blind eye to, we need to know the predispositions of these patients. We need to know if the patient is, is being taken care of in the appropriate setting. Yeah. Um, and again, it's like they completely miss patient care for lack of paper. Yeah. Which seems ludicrous. Um, and I know that like some centers are just going to go ahead and say we have this in place. Our doctors are used to it. This is what we're going to do because it's a patient safety issue, mm -hmm. not a documentation issue. Um, and actually, that that has been our experience. Is a lot of people, even though the option there is to change the timing of those histories and physicals, they are often going back and just using the same one because it's easier than making all those changes and justifying them for CMS purposes. Those that are screening, I don't think they're they're aware of what, okay, so you're not going to do this? Well, you have to do this long list of 11 things that I'll teach you to do. Yeah. Um, and I don't think all of them have read all the way through it like like you do and like Anne You know, you guys know it meticulously. Right. So that, I think that's just going to be one of many problems, one of many things that we're going to need to look at. So I start with reminding them that Medical records is part of patient safety. Those people in the office that are taking keeping care of your medical records are keeping care of that patient. Yeah. Um, and if they need those documents, and that that information in there may have to go to a different doctor that's helping with a different thing. Um, and I don't know if that's you know that's part of even the people in the office that do work give themselves credit for you are part of the safe patient safety process. So I really like to start there um, with those, which is fine. So say everything, say there's nobody to. We don't have anybody in charge. Well, I really want to talk to that person, so let's figure out who it is. Um, and I'm learning as I go. There's things that I thought everybody did without fail that is not really. We don't even ask the question. I, I I see that too. You know, like we we just assume that was happening, and and then we we go in and we're taking it back. We're taking it back. Oh, wow, yeah. yeah. And then you'll go back and look at the nurse chart on it, and that particular thing is even on the things they look. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I think we have. As a, as a company and as for the, the clients that work with us, we have some work to do to get them up to speed. Um, and then those the people at the centers need to make their staff understand how important the documentation is. It isn't just a nuisance. It isn't just to get to the end of the day. What you're writing down is really very important and may you know, be a legal thing in a courtroom somewhere down the road. Thank you very much, Judy. Um, I, I want to call upon... Uh, Three of my nurses who are uh, intimately involved in um, and have been challenged recently with uh, staff turnover issues, staffing issues, education of staff. I mean, we could be talking for weeks on this thing. So I'm going to start with Donna and then Ann and then Kathy. If you would each introduce yourselves and then we'll start talking about this topic. Hi, I'm Donna Hall. I'm the 
I'm Donna Montefio. I am senior nurse control for ambulatory healthcare strategies. Hi, I'm Ann Geyer. I'm chief nursing officer. Hi, I'm Kathy Foti. I'm also a senior nurse consultant. So, Donna, I'm going to start with you. And, and of course, I'll let uh, the other two and anybody actually wants to chime in on this. Uh, Donna, you uh, you have uh, you're you're our newest employee. Welcome to Amateur Healthcare Strategies. Uh, I do think you've been on a podcast before, but uh, you uh, you came from one of our clients, and uh, and uh, we've enjoyed having you here. But uh, has uh, is it safe to say that you were thrown into a fire? Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe just the start of a fire, <laughs> not a big fire, but I think there's a real need in in the ASC community now for companies like this. Um, the challenges of running a center are much greater than they were 20 years ago when I started, for right. sure. Um, and this is a whole different side of the business, so it's it's been it's been interesting. And, and to that end, uh, some of the challenges that you've had have been with sudden turnovers in organizations, the organizations that have had that have new, uh, you know, uh, senior leadership in the organizations. Uh, and fortunately, they have been, uh, you know, wise to to uh, call upon experts to be able to help them with it. Not that they are not capable of being able to do this themselves, but they, you know, <laughs> taken over a new organization, especially when significant change. Often what you've run into is that the entire leadership team has changed. So... Right. Yeah, I have a couple of centers now that um, the entire leadership has changed. And with the, the new um, administration coming in, some of the DONs have decided it's not a great mix and, and have left the, uh, those centers. And that's a huge challenge because with a new leader at the top um, and not having a DON or a strong DON to kind of get the message across to all of the staff, they're kind of floundering and and trying to find a director of nursing who is not just experienced, but experienced in the world of ASCs is, is very difficult, very hard to find. And the learning curve for somebody coming in from a hospital or somebody coming up from a staff position can be pretty severe. So these this is going to be um, where we step in and try and mentor these new people coming in or coming up to get them to the point where they can really be independent. And that's where some of our boot camps, those who are not familiar with our services and amateur healthcare strategies, as well as the uh, ASC podcast, we have these boot camps that are four-day virtual conferences that uh, provide the skills, not all the skills, of course, you can't, uh, you can't learn everything by, uh, by book or by, you know, four-day conference, but they have been very helpful in doing that training. So, so uh, just talk briefly about some of the things that you do immediately when you go in. What are, what are the first things that you do, you know, when you are brought on to a client that has had this sudden change? So, so the first thing um, for me, and, and again, because I'm so new at this as well, is trying to just get a gauge from the person who is in charge to say, where are you with all of regulatory compliance? Where are you with your with your reporting? Where are you with, you know, all of the things that you're monitoring that you should be looking at monthly, quarterly with your life safety stuff? And, you know, what do you have in place already? And where is that gap? I guess sort of the gap analysis to see where you are and where you should be. And then try and get a good idea of the level of understanding and knowledge for everything that needs to be taken care of um, in a day or a month or a quarter. Um, that's really where, where I've been starting so far. And then from there, we we identify the resources that are needed, provide 
in our situation, we provide those resources and, and give them the proper training. But I think it's important to your point, it's important that as soon as this change occurs, if you are the owner of the company, you've got to bring those additional resources in, whether it be from a consulting company, whether it be you as the you know owners uh, to, to step up as quickly as possible uh, to identify somebody to take charge and be very careful about bringing people in that do not have expertise in ASCs. That's been one of the challenges that often, you know, owners do not understand that you can't just pull somebody out of a hospital and throw them into an ASC and expect them at a high level. Right. Very true. And 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 also to your point, bring somebody in quickly because once you start to fall behind, you're forever chasing after that, trying to get back to where you should have been. <laughs> And Kathy, I'm going to uh, go to you. Um, I, I'm not sure this is the question that I prepped you, prepped you for, but uh, we'll 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 let you uh, uh, we'll we'll help you out in this one. So, Kathy, I'm very concerned about the nursing shortage that we have. Um, I, I'm going to have Ann talking a bit about where we are in the in the in the nursing industry, but it's suffice to say we're having problems finding nurses, and sometimes that uh, challenge in finding nurses means that we either don't have enough nurses to be able to maintain the same level of care, or we have a quality issue, or we have a, a, a gap in education or a gap in skills to be able to do that. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about some of the some of the concerns that we have when we go into a center about making sure that the member that that everybody understands that uh, you need time to train, you need time to identify people to come in, and that sometimes that's going to mean that you're going to have to slow down the cases. Sure. Um, for me, you know, being quality background in Six Sigma or you know being black belt or however you want to deal with quality. Um, A black belt in uh, black belt in uh, quality. Quality. Yep. So, yeah. So basically we work off, you know, the premise of work better, not harder, you know, create a lean environment in an ASC. However, if we go too lean, the quality of our patient care is affected. Uh, research has shown that, um, you know, patient satisfaction goes down, uh, potentially poor outcomes if we don't have the amount of staff. And I find the challenge, especially in this environment after COVID, uh, one, we're having difficulty finding nurses because you've got a, a large proportion of nurses who've decided, you know, I'm 55, 60, I've done my career, I'm going to go into something else. Uh, and then we have younger nurses that don't necessarily, they have the expertise um, that may potentially be required in a PACU setting where you need a little bit more critical care or someone in an operating room, which is more specific. So you really need to have that strong director of nursing. She is your, re I, I have to, I point everything back to director of nursing. She is the resource for every nurse in that place. And if you have a young staff or a lean staff, that director of nursing is wearing multiple um, hats, trying to educate, precept, and, and still meet the requirements, the regulatory requirements to offer the continued quality of care. And, and to have, you know, you, you don't want to badmouth your owners, but I think you know, for them, it's more a business 
aspect versus well, we can, you know, we can do these cases. We've got, you know, we can pull the director of nursing, but if that director of nursing is an operating room and she's not available to answer the questions for others, it's really, really difficult. And it's it's a hard conversation to have when you are running so lean that you don't have anybody to um, step in your per diems to step in if somebody is sick or or calls out for a personal reason. It's really, really difficult to um, run a center on a daily basis. And there is no excuse for uh, maintaining the same volume of cases that you were doing before because you don't have the finances. Uh, good right. luck defending yourself in court in that type of a scenario. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're chomping at the bit. <laughs> yeah, I can talk on this for an hour. Uh, so so, I'm, so I'm, I'm probably better focus, Anne. I know. Uh, so, Anne. <laughs> oh, John, I can be very pithy with this one. I'm going to yeah, tell most it. of you that are listening on this call, do not hire the first warm body that interviews with you in order to fill a position because you're afraid you're going to have to staff. Do not do that because once you've done that, and they're not competent, or they're not motivated, or they don't demonstrate initiative, or they're not ASC background, you have made a mistake you're going to dig out of for a year. So, and I, I I, can't, in my long career, I've seen that done over and over again, where the administrator hires, the. there's been an opening, it's been open for a month, she hires the first nurse that comes down, the that she even thinks will show up for work, number one. And it's a huge mistake. So that's number one. Number two, always have in mind the worst case scenario that you might lose somebody, a key player, and have other people identified that could move up into that position. And this especially applies to your leaders. That's where you're mentoring, as John will probably say. I, I'm passionate about mentoring. Identify potential leaders and start training them while you're still there. Something could happen to you. Something could happen to your director of nursing. I totally agree with Kathy that they're the pivotal role in the surgery center regarding clinical <laughs> operations. But what is your plan? What is your backup in case XYZ happens? Because guess what? We're seeing XYZ happening every single day. Thank you. We are, uh, we, as always, we talk a lot <laughs> and we have uh, these retreats have been very valuable. I want to uh, kind of call it to a, to a close here, though. Uh, we are actually calling the whole conference or a whole retreat to a close at the same time that we're calling this uh, podcast to that. But to 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 really kind of point out that we at Amateur Healthcare Strategies, uh, we're a very close-knit group, as we've proven yet again here in the uh, the last three days that we've been together. We're very proud of this company. We've been very proud of what we've been able to accomplish. And we are at your service. We are here to be able to solve any of these problems that we've talked about. You know, so feel free to call me at uh, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, 585-594-1167. And we'd be glad to talk about our needs. But Sue, I'm going to end with the two of us and talking a little bit about the podcast and the importance of this free resource. So obviously, you, you've already discovered it if you're listening to this. In addition to the free podcast, there are other items that we have that, that are already available 
uh, but also things that we are we've talked about and actually have decided to introduce as a result of, of our Saturday morning sessions with our uh, patron members, which I encourage you to become a patron member if you're not already, um, uh, where you can just drop in every, any Saturday morning at 10 o'clock Eastern Standard to talk things through, as well as have access to uh, a broad database and a, a number of free conferences that you can listen to. It's a, it's a very good value at $25 a month. But the other things that, that we have is conferences on credentialing. We have, we have our boot camps here. Um, we have the, uh, the conditions for coverage conference. We have infection control training that is available to, uh, provide you with a certificate to prove to surveyors that you are, um, uh, that you have uh, the training to be an infection control coordinator. And then during uh, this conference, we've decided to introduce uh, a couple more conferences. We're going to be doing, uh, I can't believe we're going to do this, but we're going to do a two-day human resources conference sometime within the next 12 months here. Um, I know that I've had a lot of calls during the month of December asking me to to be able to help provide uh, people that have the CAS credential with HR uh, credits. So, so you're going to have an opportunity to get 16 credits, I think, if we uh, if we do this right. So we'll be announcing that soon. And then a big thing that came out of this is uh, recognizing the importance of, of uh, life safety. Uh, so Alex and I and, and Mike and uh, Jim Masters, who's not on with us, are putting together some type of a program. We have no details yet because we haven't figured this all out, but we are going to be uh, one of your major sub- uh, providers of life safety um, consulting moving forward. And I'm very excited about that. Sue, do you have any? Um, it, it all falls to Sue because, you know, I can come up with all of these ideas, but somebody's got to edit all of these podcasts. Somebody has to you know, schedule these things. And I just want to publicly state thank you, Sue, for, for, for doing that. And thank you. Go ahead. Just going to say you're welcome. And, <laughs> and I know I, we always go back to this when we first started this, that I, I really, I couldn't believe we'd be able to come up with more than, you know, maybe four or five. I thought we're going to run out of subjects, but it just more and more keeps coming up. And I think, you know, we're always open to any new ideas, things that people want us to talk about. Um, you know, we, we really like being a resource and an educational, something you can go to for your staff or or yourself and, and between the boot camps and just listening to the podcast. 178 episodes. I believe this is 179 and we're still going strong. And this uh, January of 2023 is our fifth anniversary of the podcast, by far uh, the longest running podcast in the industry. I want to thank all of you at uh, Amateur Healthcare Strategies. I'm, I'm actually somewhat cheery-eyed coming to an end here because we have had so much time together. I know we're exhausted. We're a little sad. Um, you know, one of our one of our members became sick during the conference, and you know, obviously that's uh, weighing on ourselves right now. We hope she gets better. Uh, but um, but I don't want to thank all of you. I want to reach out to all of you that are listening uh, to, to to realize that we're here, either you know, as a free resource. Uh, or, you know, our patron program, which is a step up from that, or going all the way to uh, the services of amateur healthcare strategies that really, um, you know, gives you a lot of handholding through these difficult times. It is becoming even more important uh, as uh, this industry gets more complicated uh, for services from companies like ours. So with that, I sign off and thank you so much. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry.
So the Georgia Society of Ambulatory Surgery Centers and the South Carolina Ambulatory Surgery Association is getting together for their semi-annual conference and trade show, March 30th and 31st, 2023, at the Renaissance Atlanta Waverly Hotel. And the AORN Global Surgical Conference and Expo 2023 is April 1st through the 4th at the Henry B. Gonzalez Convention Center in San Antonio, Texas. And ASCA 2023 Conference and Expo will be May 17th through the 20th at uh, 2023 at the Kentucky International Convention Center in Louisville, Kentucky. So I'm so excited about going Mm -hmm. back to Kentucky. And we're going to get everybody together again from our uh, as many people as we can get there from Amateur Healthcare Strategies and the podcast. And and, uh, hope to see a lot of our listeners down there. And if we do the same thing we did last year, we'll uh, we'll. Uh, uh, send an invite out to get together uh, somewhere mutual for mm-hmm. all of our uh, podcast listeners, and maybe uh, and do a uh, live uh, interview for the uh, the podcast. So uh, definitely uh, uh, keep an eye out for this, and make sure you sign up. I think uh, the tickets are going very quickly for this. Also wanted to talk about our upcoming boot camps. We have not actually, at least when we recorded this, uh, we have not up, uh, announced officially the dates of all of these, mm-hmm. uh, nor is there a link yet. But uh, within the next couple of weeks, we'll have the links for the um, next three boot camps. The May Director of Nursing Boot Camp uh, will be in May uh, 2023. And in July, we will have the next Administrators Boot Camp, uh, the same thing that we just did a couple week, or a week ago. And then, as we announced earlier, there, in August, we will have the first business office manager boot camp. And that date actually has been settled. That would be uh, Tuesday, August 8th through the end of that week. And also, don't forget about our pre-recorded events, all available on ASCPodcast.com. We have our 2020 credentialing conference, still very valuable and, and useful today. In fall 2022, we had a finance and accounting conference, which would be helpful for anybody that's studying for the finance section of the CASC exam. We have our conditions for coverage conference from 2021, which we're going to re-record uh, this mm-hmm. year, but uh, that's an eight-hour conference on all of the conditions for coverage for ambulatory surgery centers. Uh, we have our medical director conference also from 2021, which uh, helped prepare medical directors for uh, surveys. And of course, we have the on-demand versions of our Director of Nursing and Administrators Bootcamp. And don't forget about our patron member program, also known as ASC Central. It's an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include some of our virtual conferences, links, and policies and procedures, forms, uh, example drills and discounts and services and books and access to AEU credits. And we probably the best part about this, in, in my view, is those weekly drop-in sessions we have on Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. So uh, definitely uh, uh, look into this and that more information is available at ASCPodcast.com. Membership in this program helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including research, staff, travel costs, conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. And as I said, more information, visit ASCPodcast.com. And that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. And please spread the word about our podcast. We continue to grow, and we do that because you tell all of your friends and colleagues. And please do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode, as always, is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, Ann Geyer, and Diana Powell. 
Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.